Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the ANU and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hi, Darren. Uh, it's Friday afternoon, the 12th of March, and today we're going to spend most of our time talking about the early days of the Biden administration, both words and actions, and what these might say about the US's trajectory in the months ahead. We're also going to fold in a discussion of the Quad into this. Uh, but look at it from a bit more of a US perspective. And afterward, we'll consider the fate of the Pacific Islands Forum. So let's begin with the Biden administration. There's actually quite a lot to talk about, I think. Um, there have been a number of concrete actions that we don't have time to discuss today, but are certainly meaningful and worth listing, I think. I mean, on day one, of the administration, the US rejoined the Paris Climate Agreement and rescinded its withdrawal from the WHO. Biden repealed the uh, travel ban uh, on Muslim majority countries and ended the zero tolerance policy, which had led to family separations at the Mexican border. The administration would later announce a re-engagement with the UN Human Rights Council. And on the 19th of February, Biden gave a speech at the Munich Security Conference expressing his determination to re-engage with Europe. A bit more controversially, on the 25th of February, Biden approved a retaliatory military strike against Iranian-backed militia inside Syria, apparently killing 17 militants. And the following day, the administration declassified a report that pinned the gruesome murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi on the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, but declined to sanction MBS directly. In early March, the administration sanctioned two senior Burmese ministers in the wake of the military coup there, and also sanctioned Russian officials and entities over the poisoning and imprisonment of opposition leader Alexei Navalny. So, Alan, before we get to the two speeches and the document that I want to focus on today, is there anything from this list or anything else that jumped out at you from these first seven weeks? I mean, not without controversy, but more or less normal, wouldn't you say? Well, refreshingly normal, uh, Darren, but um, maybe with a with an added sense of urgency. Uh, in this, like other areas, you get the sense that the Biden administration knows that it's got little time to waste. Mm. And you can see that in all those um, months before the election, uh, the uh, the team weren't uh, relaxing yeah. but preparing to strike from uh, from the word go. Mm. So, the, I mean, the contrast is with those crazy early days in the Trump administration when it was pretty clear that no one had any real idea what they were doing or who was going to uh, do what. And in contrast to that, policy is now coming are fully formed and well coordinated, and that's good news. Mm. Yeah, it's been a curious experience for me listening to some podcasts in the past week um, about what are probably the two most controversial things that they've done, which is the Syria airstrikes and and the lack of any censure, any real censure of MBS, because. I realized that I think a kind of apathy had set in for me very early in the Trump 
years when it came to certain aspects of the foreign policy debate. I lost confidence so quickly that Trump would ever weigh strategic contexts and competing arguments on difficult issues with any care that it just didn't seem worth me spending the mental energy to grapple grapple with these issues myself. And now I don't have opinions on what was the right course on these two um, more recent events, but it's nice to, to believe or to know that the folks inside the White House are thinking and debating these issues on their merits with the trade-offs involved, and rather than just looking at them through the lens of politics or Trump's own personal interests. Now, given it's so early, I did want to focus on two speeches and a document. The first speech is by the president himself. I think it was his first post the inauguration, and it was given at the State Department in Foggy Bottom on the 4th of February. Um, and then we'll, a second, we'll talk about Secretary um, of State Blinken's first speech a month later and the interim national security strategic guidance that was released that day. So let's take each one by one. Starting with Biden, I mean, he got straight to the point in his speech declaring, quote, America is back. America is back. Diplomacy is back at the center of our foreign policy, end quote. Now, to me, this was really, the speech was mostly a reiteration of the themes of his campaign, an emphasis on repairing alliances, a focus on countering authoritarianism. You know, he named China and Russia specifically, uh, but also a determination to address global challenges like climate change. Now, Alan, you quoted this speech in our last podcast with Natasha Kassam, and I want to reprise and lengthen that quote. We must start with diplomacy rooted in America's most cherished democratic values, defending freedom, championing opportunity, upholding universal rights, respecting the rule of law, and treating every person with dignity. That's the grounding wire of our global policy, our global power. That's our inexhaustible source of strength. That's America's abiding advantage. Now, Biden confirmed plans to hold a summit of democracy early in his administration, and he ended the speech by saying, quote, the leadership of diplomats of every stripe doing the daily work of engagement created the very idea of a free and interconnected world. We are a country that does big things. American diplomacy makes it happen. And our administration is ready to take up the mantle and lead once again. Alan, I want to pin the issue of democracy for a moment and at this stage just ask you two questions, two short questions. First, did you have any strong reactions to this speech overall? But second, Biden says America is ready to lead again. But what does leadership for you look like or mean right now? What kind of leadership do you want to see? Well, I liked the speech and I liked the fact that he went down to the State Department's to deliver it, and that was symbolically important, and it was a you know considerable reassurance for a very badly bruised American uh, Foreign Service after what they've been through recently, mm. and uh, the message that it's needed again, I think, will be uh, be good for them. And uh, so, what sort of leadership do we need? Well, I, th- I think he showed the way forward, and that is sane leadership. So there was a speech which you know understood the world as it is reflective leadership and there was a lot of that in the speech uh, about us and you know what we have to do 
but it was also quietly confident, mm. and we need that as well. We don't need a sort of wrist slashing, you know, American introspection. Mm. We need the sort of conviction that better things can come, and he gave us that as well. Mm. I was glad that he and his team recognised uh, two things. One, that you know, the year 2021 is very different to any time in recent history, uh, and two, that an active, engaged America willing to utilise the complete range of foreign policy tools can be a positive force. But I I don't know yet what leadership looks like. Um, other than, I think, to repeat the point that I made about Myanmar recently um, and ASEAN centrality, that it's my intuition that the US is going to be most effective when it places more weight or relatively more weight on the visions of other friendly and somewhat like-minded states um, and what they you know, what they envisage for the Indo-Pacific region, rather than looking to impose its idealised version on everyone else. You know, for all of China's talk of non-interference, I think it's very clear that they do have a vision for how they want the world to be and are willing to use the full range of, of instruments to achieve it. And perhaps the US then can be effective and in contrasting, you know, making a contrasting case by being more humble. I know that's not a word we normally associate with the US, but it might be one worth trying out. Um, now, the second speech, um, maybe a bit more substantive, was one by Secretary Blinken. And the theme is in the title, a foreign policy for the American people. Biden, in his speech, had said that there is, quote, no longer a dividing line between foreign and domestic policy. Every action we take in our conduct abroad, we must take with American working families in mind, end quote. And Blinken went into more detail. He began with an acknowledgement that practitioners hadn't always done a good job of connecting the needs and aspirations of the American people to foreign policy. And he stated that the first foreign policy priority would be to ask, what will US policy mean for US workers and families? On trade policy specifically, he conceded that not enough had been done previously, quote, to understand who would be negatively affected and what would be needed to adequately offset their pain or to enforce agreements that were already on the books and help more workers and small businesses fully benefit from them. In this new approach, he said, the US would, quote, fight for every American job and for the rights, protections, and interests of all American workers. And later he said, quote, our trade policies will need to answer very clearly how they will grow the American middle class, create new and better jobs, and benefit all Americans, not only those for whom the economy is already working. Now, Alan, I'll pause there and ask you for comment on this trade policy angle in particular. I mean, when you hear this, do you worry about protectionism? Uh, well, let, let me just quote one more line from Lincoln. He said, our domestic renewal and our strength in the world are completely entwined and how we work will reflect that mm -hmm. reality. Lots of previous administrations and previous political leaders have talked about the link between the world outside and domestic policy, but I don't think I've seen anything as firmly declaratory as that sentence there. Mm. Now, on trade policy, I've said this before, but in a lot of ways, Biden's foreign policy for working Americans is just Trump's America first with better manners. I don't know anyone who's worked with American trade officials over the years 
who hasn't come away from that experience with an admiration for their professionalism or for their single-minded focus on American interests. And that's going to be magnified now. You can see some evidence of this in the fact that when the TPP-11 was formed after the US dropped out, 20 of the provisions, 20, relating to investment, government procurement, uh, intellectual property that the US had insisted be in there were dropped. So yeah, they'll be fighting to advance their interests uh, in in this and they're very good at doing it. But it's not surprising, Mm. I mean, because clearly the disadvantaged workers Lincoln is trying to appeal to here are precisely the Donald Trump voters that the Democrats want Mm. back. But you know, as I was, you know, reading through, through this, I, I was thinking to myself, this is right up Darren's alley. So. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure you, I'm sure you could predict what I was going to say, which is that when I was reading this, I immediately went to Prime Minister Morrison's 2019 Lowy lecture and especially the concept of negative globalism. I think that concept is exactly what Lincoln is talking about here. Your negative globalism for him is elite-driven policy that doesn't understand who will be negatively affected uh, and doesn't attempt to connect foreign policy outcomes to the lived experience of ordinary people. Now, is that America first with better manners? I'm not so sure, but it's certainly not liberal internationalism. Um, but and and while you know not every foreign policy issue is going to have a middle class lens, uh, I think it's good practice you know for American diplomats you know to be thinking about that as their starting point as they engage with the world. Now, my hope, of course, is that and this might be a quixotic hope, is that both our prime minister uh, and the Biden team still understand that globalism generally is essential for peace and prosperity around the world and that these statements are in large part about shifting rhetoric rather than signalling a return to protectionism. I mean, as you said, Alan, the Americans already fight tooth and nail for every interest in trade negotiations like the TPP. So it's hard to see what's going to be that different. But, you know, other than, and I think this is going to be key, connecting trade policies to domestic policies and sort of designing packages where you might present a new trade agreement or an updated one and couple it with domestic, you know, trade adjustment assistance and other kind of, you know, support programs Yeah, yeah and that, placing an emphasis on those. Oh, and, you know, and item six of our, of this, of this suite of, of mess of packages, a suite of, um, of, uh, of new plans. Oh, there happens to be a trade agreement as well attached to it. Um, and, uh, and if you can, you know, just shifting emphasis might get you a long way. Anyway, I now I now want to talk about democracy um, and the theme of renewing democracy. Uh, I, I quoted Biden a minute ago, and Blinken went into more detail here. Interestingly, and I think admirably, he began at home, um, referencing the six January rights and concluding that shoring up our democracy is a foreign policy imperative. And he took heart from the fact that this process was so open and transparent, if painful, you know, saying of America's problems, quote, we confront them for the world to see. It's painful. Sometimes it's ugly, but it's how we make progress, end quote. And he continued by saying, quote, the more we and other democracies can show the world that we can deliver, not only for our people, but for each other, the more we can refute the lie that authoritarian countries love to tell 
that theirs is a better way to meet people's fundamental needs and hopes. It is on us to prove them wrong. And he emphasises that this would not include costly military interventions or overthrowing regimes by force. Alan, do you think that there is an, an actionable, a tangible, effective program of democracy renewal that's possible? I mean, what is it, what is possible here? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, we're obviously starting from a very difficult position. There were two particular reports that came out in 2020, one from Freedom House and the other from the uh, Economist Intelligence Unit, which showed the extent of democratic recession. Um, Freedom House looked at the way in which uh, governments around the world had been using surveillance, uh, discriminatory restrictions on freedoms and arbitrary or violent enforcement as a result of the pandemic to reinforce their rule and concluded that this was the 15th straight year of decline in political rights and civil liberties. And then the annual democracy index from The Economist showed the lowest mm -hmm. score since the index began in 2006. So something serious is going on. And apart from talking up the benefits of democracy, but not a necessary condition for change, leading by example, another good thing, but you know, hard to see what is possible one thing is for sure, and that is that there won't be a return, I think, to the neocon solution of trying to impose democracy on others. Mm, mm, yeah, I mean, I have said before on the podcast, I think that democracy promotion needs to become cool again. But that statement was always partially tongue in cheek, um, because I agree with you. And, and Blinken seemed to acknowledge this in the speech that that neocon imposition of democracy, if tried again, will go no better than it did in the 2000s. But what I did mean then, and I think is still true now, is that the health of domestic political institutions across the region and the world matters. And I think in particular, it matters through their capacity to promote transparency and hold leaders accountable for bad policy decisions. So this involves both shining a light on what governments do, that's the transparency part, and by enabling peaceful and orderly political change, that's the, the accountability part. But as you say, Alan, things are trending poorly um, and so I'm okay with the administration's label of democratic renewal, but as a policy program, I'd prefer to anchor these objectives to these principles of, of transparency and accountability rather than democracy. Uh, a focus on the slow incremental process of building up institutional capacity, really. You know, elections are, of course, one part of that, but there is also the norm building and capacity building inside bureaucracies, inside political parties, militaries and police forces, civil society organisations, uh, and crucially, the media, uh, which I think, despite you know, a, rough, a rough image at the moment, is more important than ever. But this is slow work. Was there anything else? Yeah, well, uh, look, uh, I think that was well said, Darren, but I also think we should note the way uh, China was treated in the speech. Blinken said, and this sort of reflected stuff that Biden had also said, China is the only country with the economic, diplomatic, military and technological power to seriously challenge the stable and open international mm. system. And then he goes on to describe the relationship america uh, will have with China, and he said, and I'm quoting him here, uh, competitive where it should be, collaborative when it can be, and adversarial when it must be. 
Now that's you know a neat and defective formulation and kudos to the speechwriters, <laughs> but there's a lot uh, packed into it and plenty of room for debate, mm. but still it does foreshadow a complex relationship with many moving parts. And I guess we'll get new insights into that next week when uh, Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan travel to Tokyo and Washington and then... Tokyo and Seoul. Uh, Sorry, Tokyo, Tokyo, coming from Washington, Tokyo and Seoul, uh, before travelling back via Alaska to meet Beijing's two senior diplomats, uh, Yang Jiji and uh, Wang mm. Yi, uh, on the way back. So that'll uh, give us more information about the way these things are going to be handled. Mm, mm. And China's reaction to them. Yeah, mm. for our third and final item here, we have this new document, the Interim National Security Strategic Guidance, and it was entitled Renewing America's Advantages. It's a 7,000-word document, which is quite hefty, given the administration is seven weeks old. But as you said, Alan, they were clearly very busy during that transition phase. Now, perhaps the most interesting thing about it is its existence. You know, the Biden team certainly seems to be in a real hurry, as you said, Alan, to put as much space between it and the four years of Trump as possible, because they're going to have to write a separate congressionally mandated national security strategy pretty soon anyway. Now, Alan, reading the commentary around the document, there seems to be broad agreement um, that, you know, its major purpose was simply to reassure the world that serious professionals were back in charge. I mean, are you reassured by its existence? I'm always reassured when the blob is back, <laughs> uh, Darren. I do not mean that. Well, I mean uh, when people who know what they are doing are back in charge. And I thought this was in some ways a more interesting uh, document than the two speeches because it was able to articulate at greater length some of the uh, themes that are coalescing in US policy under Biden. Yeah, I was also reassured. I mean, as you said at the outset, Alan, there is a, a great sense of urgency here. I think the big question, and this is one that we'll, I think, be coming back to time and again in the next four years, is you know, how to solve the credibility problem that Trump himself or someone like him could return, you know, at the end of this administration. And that's going to take decades to solve. But the interesting sort of more immediate um, problem is how do you conduct diplomacy and design agreements that will um, achieve things in the short term and be attractive, even if you might get replaced by a Trump-like figure down the track. Um, but, you know, for now, as you say, we have a, a serious substantive document that will contribute to public debates and those debates inside governments who are watching the US and trying to work out where it's going. And at the margins, you would hope begin to shape you know, how the world thinks about and deals with Washington. And that's a great thing. Now, there are five national security challenges listed in this document, and I'll list them in order. One, borderless security threats that require collective action. So that includes pandemics and climate change. Two, the erosion of democratic norms. Three, the changing balance of power. And this is a specific reference to China. Four, challenges to the international order. And five, revolutionary advances in technology. Now, I did some crude word counts and variations on the word democracy appear 47 times in the document. Climate appeared 27 times. China, Chinese, Beijing appeared 21 times. And that's the same number of times that the word allies appeared as well. Alan, what were your big takeaways from the document? Well, it was certainly a, a document from a democratic 
uh, administration, and that was underlined by the the fact that it begins by going through a list of the events America faces, and it begins with you know pandemic, uh, economic downturn, crisis of racial justice, deepening of climate emergency, and uh, later notes the importance of the LGBTQI plus rights. So um, you know it then turns to more traditional issues of Chinese and Russian challenges, but that's still a notable place to begin. Yes. Um, It's also interesting in its recognition and referred to a couple of times, as you've noted uh, already, that things can't go back to the way they were before. So although it says all the things you would expect about America's capacity to overcome these challenges, it's also a pretty realistic document uh, including about the need to address America's own own problems. And um, just, just back on your word count, Darren, I didn't see a single reference to the podcast's 2020 word of the year, sovereignty. <laughs> so it's um, it's got more faith in multilateral institutions than we saw under Trump. Uh, it notes that these are being tested and that the past order simply can't be can't simply be restored but that uh, this presents an opportunity to bring like-minded states and influential non-state actors together in new ways. Together with our allies and partners, we can modernise the architecture of international cooperation for the challenges of this century, and that's something that you and I have been discussing for a while now. Mm. Yeah, what I couldn't get past, um, and this is certainly not a novel point, many have recognised this, you know, in the in the past six months, is how contradictory the aims are. You know, successful collective action, which is goal number one, will require working with non-democracies, goal number two, and above all, it will require working with China, even while the US is looking to balance it. So that's goal number three. And I know the Biden team, including and especially John Kerry, his, his climate envoy, when pushed on this, have been very clear that they expect China to cooperate on climate change issues because it's in China's interests to do so and that the White House will firmly resist any attempt to, you know, make cooperation or link cooperation, make it conditional on US concessions on other issues. But that's going to be very hard. The Chinese are going to put a lot of pressure, I think. And, you know, I don't think ultimately that the Chinese government values cooperation on global issues more or maybe even as much as they do value their own authority and legitimacy um, as the sole political force inside China. Absolutely. To take one example, you know, we've got the this new five-year plan um, and early readings of that are expressing disappointment at its lack of climate ambition. But, you know, this is the world we live in now. We, you, we have to embrace and live in these contradictions. Um, and, you know, the Biden administration, the Morrison government, or really any government um, around the world, whether democratic or authoritarian, whether wealthy or, or not, is going to face contradictions between long-term interests and short-term political or even security interests. And look, it's ever been thus, but the stakes are obviously that much higher now. Yeah, no, I'm glad you added it has ever been thus because uh, that's the the whole job of um, foreign (laughs) policy is this complex balancing. Look, Darren, I I want to talk about a section of the document that will be of almost no interest to anyone in Australia except the uh, fine people who are listening to this uh, podcast. (laughs) 
but I want to read it because I think there are lessons for Australia here. So excuse this long extract, but uh, it says, America accomplishes more when we lead with our full diplomatic, economic, health and developmental toolkit. For that reason, and to avoid over-reliance on the US military to carry out tasks and missions better suited to others, our national security budget will prioritise new resources for diplomacy and development. We will also invest in our intelligence community, reinforcing its capacity to deliver the timely analysis and warning required to inform policymaking, uh, identify opportunities and head off threats before they turn into crises. Because traditional distinctions between foreign and domestic policy and among national security, economic security, health security and environmental security are less meaningful than ever before, we will reform and rethink our agencies, departments, uh, interagency processes and White House organisation to reflect this new reality. We will ensure technology, engineering and mathematics, economics and finance and critical languages and regions are fully integrated into our decision making. Because the federal government does not and never will have a monopoly on expertise, we will develop new processes and partnerships to ensure that state, municipal, tribal, civil society, non-profit, diaspora, faith-based and private sector actors are better integrated into policy deliberations and we will develop new mechanisms to coordinate policy across this diverse range of stakeholders. Now, this might end up, of course, being absolutely nothing, but the fact that it appears in this early document, and as we were saying before, these things have obviously been in planning well before the uh, beginning of January, suggests that some thought has been given by the Biden administration to a fairly basic reassessment of the structure of national security making in Washington. And that's something uh, very much worth the conversation in Canberra as well. Mm. Yeah, very interesting and, and, and well spotted, Alan. There's a good lesson here, especially for the students listening. I, I missed this quote entirely. It's the, the last paragraph or the last two paragraphs before the conclusion. That's where you always think. Yeah, <laughs> in my haste, I had just not read. You know, I think I just skimmed over it and went, oh, yeah. And then when you pointed it out, and I read it again, or you know, read it properly. I I was struck. It's it's a remarkable statement, you know, to to in what is effectively a mini national security strategy, and as you foreshadow, Alan, and I know we've discussed on the podcast before, the question of of, of whether the our own foreign policy white paper 2017 needs an update, given how much has changed in the world since then, and so this is obviously a time for for fresh ideas and. Just that those two paragraphs alone open up a world of possibilities, I think, for creative thinking. So that's it's quite exciting. Hmm. Now, moving on quickly, the one concrete bit of diplomacy I want to talk about is around the Quad. Part of what's notable about the Quad is it's the one area you know, where the new administration has been explicit, I want to say, um, in seeking continuity with the Trump administration's approach. Um, and you know, I remember Jake Sullivan actually uh, you know, openly praising what the Trump team had done. And to develop this relationship even further, the foreign ministers of the four countries met on the 18th of February 
Um, but just in this past week, we received confirmation that there is going to be a virtual leaders meeting happening actually later today. Um, unfortunate timing for us. Earlier reporting suggested that it was the Biden team that proposed this leaders summit. Now, Alan, acknowledging that by the time our listeners are, are listening in, uh, the meeting will have happened. Let's try and put our cards on the table here and 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 say, ask ourselves if we were advising the Biden administration and knowing that in principle they're very keen on the quad. You know, what's our advice? What should they be looking to do? What's their strategy here? The quad, the quad from the beginning was fundamentally a signal to China from the other powers in the Indo-Pacific. So it was a um, hey there, Beijing, we can form our own gang message. And that's, you know, it's, it's worth saying that. And with the leaders meeting now, it's a bigger and brighter signal. Mm. Uh, it's something that Biden could do right off, something that he could claim as, its, as his own because it hasn't been done before. And in that, it's uh, reminded me of um, Bill Clinton and the, uh, and the APEC leaders meeting. It's not something I think anyone, including the people around him, probably would have trusted uh, Trump to do. Mm. But the question is, can it be more than a signal? And as I say, a signal is perfectly sensible. Uh, but I doubt that it can be uh, more than that and don't think it needs to. I'd bet against it ever becoming a military alliance. Um, mm. India's non-alignment and Japan's constitutional impediments uh, too great for that. Short of that, that, is there anything particular you'd choose these four countries to do together? Um, not a shared commitment to democracy, given what's happening in India. No. Now, you know, certainly things can be, and I'm willing to bet will be, uh, cobbled together for some sort of joint statement, you know, throw in COVID cooperation and humanitarian relief and uh, and things like that. Uh, so that'll happen, but it's not particularly uh, distinctive. What, what about you? Mm. Yeah, I agree with that, Alan. And, and I think I want to continue on with a theme I've been emphasising today, that incrementalism is the right long-term approach here. It's striking to me that three of the four countries are already very, very close. But then you have India, um, and the challenge with working closely with India is you bump up very quickly against some of the contradictions I mentioned earlier um, in regards to that interim guidance. Yes, the Indians have these overlapping security interests when it comes to China, but you know, they very quickly diverge in other places. And you're not going to resolve that. Um, and you don't want to lean too much into this because very quickly you'll wrap yourself in those contradictions. Uh, and that will undermine you know, other diplomatic initiatives and your overall strategy vis-a-vis -vis other countries. So I think what you do is you, as you say, Alan, you have, you know, you, you've got joint statements. Um, there are things that you, you, you know, short-term things that you could do. But above all for me, you know, I'd want to focus on building those connections at the lower levels, you know, between militaries and bureaucracies, universities and civil society with a vision of building up the kind of familiarity and trust that the other three countries have with each other. Um, and that is also a decades-long project, right? Um, but the benefit of having a leaders meeting is it helps, you know, helps focus everyone's attention and provides impetus for those sinews to develop, I think. Okay, well, let's let's quickly finish off on our second item, which is on the Pacific Islands Forum, because on the 9th of February, 
you know, the forum split um, with five leaders of Micronesian nations, Nauru, Kiribati, um, the Marshall Islands, Palau, and the Federated States of Micronesia, FSM. Um, and they said that they were initiating the formal process of withdrawing from the PIF. The spark that ignited this, this dramatic turn of events was the election of a former Cook Islands Prime Minister, Henry Puna, to become the PIF's new Secretary General, but it was a a one-vote margin of nine to eight, which the five Micronesian governments claimed broke an informal practice of rotating the role between Polynesian, Melanesian, and Micronesian representatives, with the Micronesians having led only once in the organization's 50-year history, these five believed it was very much their turn. DFAT put out a statement saying that Australia understood their disappointment, um, and the Minister for the Pacific, Zed Seselja, said that Australia would do what it could to try to heal the rift. New Zealand's MFAT said that it hoped that the, the five would reconsider in the year that it will take for the withdrawal to come into effect. Now, of course, Australia and New Zealand are both members of the PIF and would have cast votes in this election. So far, only Palau has really taken decisive action, including shutting down its embassy in Fiji. But Palau's president, um, Suragel Whips, has said that he thinks both Australia and New Zealand supported the Cook Islands candidate, although ultimately we, we don't know. It was a secret ballot. So, Alan, what happened? Uh, why does it matter for Australia's interests and what, what can be done? Well, for one thing, I, I think it showed one of the problems we're going to have if the virtual diplomacy of the past year is not soon bolstered by the old-fashioned personal mm. sort. I, I may be wrong, but but I think there would have been more readable signs of where this was going, more opportunities to work out a solution if the uh, if the leaders had all been present in the yep. in the room together. Yep. Um, it's obviously a problem for Australia. A coalition building in the regions of importance to us is at the heart of our, our foreign policy. So the fracturing of the Pacific Islands Forum is a real problem. It's also embarrassing for us in some ways because we regularly assure our partners that this is our patch, our family, as Scott Morrison says, and the place where we uh, will can be relied on to pull more than our weight. Um, and you just have to look at, at any of the Pacific step-up speeches to see that. Now, I don't mean by that that Australia has the capacity or the right to simply go in and knock heads together in the uh, in the search for a solution. The states involved, um, some of them very small, uh, do have agency. Mm. And there was a lot of internal Pacific dynamics going on here, including, I suspect, uh, who would be the best candidate, and uh, that was probably Puna, or whether it was more important to, to adhere to the agreement on sub-regional uh, rotation. Mm. There are also, there's also some questions among the other regional states about US influence on the Micronesian states through the uh, Compact of Free Association and, uh, and American uh, Responsibility for defence. Uh, so what's to be done? Well, as you noted, it's going to be a year until the withdrawal comes into effect, and it shouldn't be beyond the capacity of the forum members to work out some sort of solution in that time. It's just going to require patience on Australia's part. 
and the sort of intimate knowledge of what moves the other members of the family that you require in any uh, dispute like this, I'd certainly begin, and I'm sure our officials are doing just that with a long discussion with the New Zealanders. Mm. Okay, well, thanks for that, Alan. Uh, let's wrap up uh, with some reading, listening and watching. Uh, what do you have this week, Alan? Uh, I, I enjoyed a recent uh, Seneca podcast called uh, Getting Chinese Politics Wrong, uh, and uh, that was an interview with the Freeman Chair of China Studies at the uh, Centre for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, uh, Jude Blanchett. And it's a discussion of the dangerous heuristics that analysts and policy makers use when they're thinking about uh, uh, China and the dangers of doing those sort of quick shorthand judgments without drawing on, mm. on solid uh, research. And they do an interesting uh, discussion in particular about thinking about uh, Xi Jinping in that regard. So it's an enjoyable discussion about an ever-present problem. Mm, I agree. It was a great episode. And, of course, I've recommended Blanchett's own podcast, Peakingology on the Past, which I think is also yeah, uh, yeah. valuable. Yeah, I need to to echo that recommendation, Alan, because I've got less of a recommendation myself and more of a, a self-promotion. Uh, last night, you and I both participated in a room on Clubhouse, a new social media platform, which I guess is like having an audio-only Zoom call, but where people can drop in and out at will, um, where the moderators of the room have the power to sort of allow anyone to speak and have a conversation, um, and then as many people as you like listening in, even if that's in the hundreds or I guess even the thousands. Natasha Kassam, Stephen Jedgetts and I had decided to try this out and organise a room to discuss Australian foreign policy. And we named it the Interdepartmental Committee, the IDC, at the suggestion of, of your friend uh, Rick Smith. Um, and last night from 8.30pm until 10 o'clock it happened and it was terrific. You know, the notional topic was uh, the, the essay that Tash and I had written in Australian Foreign Affairs, but the conversation ranged quite widely. And over the course of the event, we had a number of others join us in the conversation, including you and, and Richard Maud, Tess Newton-Kane, Kate Clayton, Sam Rogovine, and indeed uh, Federal MP Tim Watts. And there was at least one other Federal MP in the audience for part of it. And I thought it was just a, a really terrific, substantive, interesting conversation. It actually helped progress my thinking on a few issues. And at a moment in history when Twitter is becoming increasingly exhausting uh, and too often generates a lot of heat but not much light. You know, this thoroughly 21st century take on the old-fashioned art of conversation, of discourse, um, was refreshing and I think useful. Um, Stephen, uh, Natasha and I need to work out how we're going to proceed from here. Uh, and one question is whether we're going to stay on Clubhouse, which for the moment is iPhone only and invite only, um, or whether we'll move this across to Twitter when it launches an equivalent service next month. But I do think there's something there, and it would be really thrilling if this can become the kind of place where listeners of this podcast can participate, not just to listen, um, you know, in on what one person last night commented was almost like a live episode of the podcast, but actually to contribute yourselves um, and help us learn and everyone else learn from your own expertise. I mean, what did you think, Alan? And you're not someone who's even on Twitter, so this is must be new waters for you. Well, you, you know me and uh, social media, Darren. Uh, many benefits, I'm sure, but 
in my view, the downside of its impact on society uh, outweighs the benefits. And besides, I want to be able to hunt and gather information for myself <laughs> rather than being served an all-you-can-eat buffet by an algorithm. So, um, frankly, you're entitled to your self-promotion because I really did enjoy the Clubhouse discussion uh, last night, but maybe that was because it didn't seem like my idea of uh, social media. Um, people could talk at any length. They could uh, uh, respond. They could ask questions. Uh, they weren't seeking to provoke or, you know, searching for memes in order to get more likes. Uh, mm. And to be honest, it wasn't it wasn't all that hugely different an experience from the Zoom webinars we've all been attending to, which you uh, during the pandemic, which you mentioned. But it was more relaxed. So if 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 it leads to thoughtful discussions between uh, respectful individuals and opens up the room for new people to participate in the debate, then long may it prosper because its goals in that case are exactly those of the Institute of International Affairs. So mm. uh, well, well done to you and uh, Tash and Stephen. Yeah, well, thanks, Alan. And, and for everyone, keep an eye on on, on Twitter. Um, and we'll announce uh, you know, our future plans um, very soon, I think. Well, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We welcome our new AIIA intern, Dominique Yap, and thank her for research and audio editing today. And as always, thanks also to Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Cheers, and talk to you again soon.